as we read the scripture a moment ago regarding our relationship to the government as placed there by a sovereign God, we are often seeing our government at times more as the enemy rather than our mission field. And I understand that. But the Scripture is clear as to our responsibility toward the government and what we ought to be doing, not only in our actions, but maybe first and foremost in our attitudes of the heart. Maybe some convicting and challenging questions might need to be our introduction this morning when we think about our relationship to the government. Here are just a few of them I thought about. We read from Romans 12 and 13 about the government, and one of the questions that might come to the uppermost part of our minds is this, are you paying your taxes? Not some of your taxes, but all of the taxes which are due. Do you speak evil of your government? Do you make unkind or uncharitable jokes or comments about the government? Especially if the president or other governmental leaders are opposite of your particular political persuasion. Are you working diligently to support or rally around or otherwise become involved in in local or national or international government in order to show your submissive character as a Christian witness? Are you endeavoring to lead a quiet life? being submissive wherever you can toward your government? Do you moan and groan about your city and its leaders? Or do you take action to help correct them or possibly even join them in the work so that you might influence them and others? Would you speak of them in person the way you speak of them at home? If your children were to hear you at home, would they believe that you are submissive to your government? If our country were to go to war, that is, under what we might call just war theory, our country has been attacked and we must respond. If our country goes to war, what would you do in preparation for such needed help? Would you volunteer in some way? Would you be willing to enlist in the armed services in order to fight for your country that is under attack? Are you seeking to understand what your government is doing and why they're doing it, whether local or national or even international governments of the world? Are you trying to help in some way? Are you seeking to become involved in local school boards or neighborhood associations or whatever other venue might help people to see your strong commitment to Jesus Christ. When you do speak passionately about our government and what they're doing or what they're not doing, are you doing it in such a way that your critique is gracious and perceived as submissive, though objecting to some issues that the government is mandating? 
Would the human institutions even know that you are a faithful believer in Jesus Christ if they were to hear you speak? Have you ever taken anyone out to lunch or dinner who are over you in governmental leadership and thanked them for their work, at least something they're doing in their work? Have you thanked the police or fire and rescue personnel for their labors who work for the city on our behalf and are also under their governmental leaders? Would you consider sending them a note of encouragement or gratitude, making them see their labor, whether political or social or emergency or medical, whatever it may be, and to say that you are very much appreciative of them? Or might it take something like 9-11 to shake us into action? Those lists of questions could go on and on and on. And if you're squirming in your seat like I am standing here, trying to figure out maybe something that our government is doing that you and I could find redemptive at all, in some way, small or large, how then do we reconcile so much of what governments, not only of this land but of other lands, are doing for which we could thank them? Because there are so many governments of the world that are oppressive, evil, wicked, God-hating, Christ-rejecting, Holy Spirit not empowering, but stiff-arming. How could our Bibles teach us to submit ourselves to oppressive government regimes who are doing nothing but seeing our Christian witness as something to stamp out and not be fully supportive of? How can our Bibles be telling us to do things that in our hearts, in a visceral way, are screaming out to do the opposite? Have you ever found that sometimes in your reading of Scripture, as I have, You're reading along and then you read something like this, obey your government, submit to them, and you have that tendency to think in your heart, but you don't know about my government, or you don't see what they're doing, and then you realize that you're actually talking to God who set them up, who put them in place, who is in charge, in control, sovereignly governing over the governing leaders. And then, of course, you and I might find ourselves saying in the next breath of our prayer, so then, Lord, if you're in charge of them, then do something. Do something about them. Make them see Christ for who he is. Make them attentive to the voice of a gospeler, a a witnesser of, of the beautiful idea, the concept, the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and not themselves. Well, I'm pretty sure that that would have been exactly some of the things thought by first century Christians, and most especially by those who were strewn from their lands 
and are now the diaspora, the, the ones who are scattered abroad, who are Christians, and for whom Peter writes in 1 Peter, submit yourself to the government, whether they're good or bad. And you need to do that so that you can show them your excellent Christian behavior. Because it's a point of the gospel that we do everything we can to obey our government when called upon and to only conscientiously object when they are demanding that we don't do what God has commanded us to do. And even then, we stand straight and we say, I must obey God rather than men. And I'm sure there were those in Peter's day in that first century ripped from their homes. They're having to walk down dusty roads in places for which they're not familiar, trying to find a place to lay their head, and all the while hearing Peter's words ring in their ears, these words. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise of those who do good or right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Live or act as free men. Act as free people, a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up or a covering for evil, but living as servants or slaves of God. Honor all people. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the king. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. Now, that's a hard word. That's a hard word. Especially in that context because we're talking about Nero. Remember last time I told you that the first phrase of 1 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, is a command. And that was the first outline point, right? The command of the Lord is to be subject or to be submissive. And it is an ongoing command. Based on the very verbal idea in that text, it is to be a continual reality in our lives that we are to be submissive to every human institution. And Peter says there, for the Lord's sake. All right, we talked about that in great detail last time. That's the command. And now we move on this morning in the latter part of verse 13 and verse 14 to know the context of our submission to the government. The context. What is that context? Here's what Peter says. We are to subject ourselves or be submissive to this human institution of which we're under 
it says here, contextually, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. This is the context. The context for the submission that Peter commands in verse 13 is given to us at the end of verse 13 and the whole of verse 14. We are called to submit to the government which is over us, and in Peter's case, a king, Nero himself, who is the one in authority, and to anyone the king puts directly in charge of men and women. So the command is clear. And now the context for that command is submission being seen in the God-ordained governmental leadership which God has placed us over. By the way, Nero's reign as emperor from the history books we know was from A.D. 54 to 68. A.D. 54 to 68. So that means that as Peter was putting pen to paper, Nero was in charge And Peter was saying, be submissive, respond to your government as those who are commanding you as your leaders, which of course means that he was telling them to respond to a despotic, despicable man and his hateful regime. It doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, outwardly, okay, maybe I'll do it begrudgingly. I'll do it because I may have a knife to my throat or a a threat. I may also be hauled into a courtroom for my faith in Christ, but I'm called nonetheless to do this, but to that man, to that regime, why? How so? Well, because, as we read earlier in Romans 13, every human institution if it's resisted by us, is tantamount to resisting God himself. That's what it clearly says in Romans 13. And remember also, I mentioned last time, that no one is to be immune to this idea of submission, right? We know that. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven three, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and that means we're submissive to Christ, And that man is the head of a woman, which means that women in general are to be submissive to their husbands and at times, if in fact those governmental leaders are males, to be submissive to males in general. And God is the head of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.3. So that during his earthly ministry, Christ submitted himself to the will of his Father. He was submissive to his heavenly Father. So there is this submission and response relationship. And it's true, of course, to those who are our governmental leaders. And do you even realize that while Satan himself and all of his minions, all of his hosts are trying to wreak evil havoc in the world, even through governments of the world, they too are submissive, begrudgingly, I'll grant you that, but submissive to God the Father and Christ Jesus as Lord and the powerful Holy Spirit. Satan can't do a thing unless it is allowed to him by God. So God has everything under control. 
He's directing everything and everyone, everywhere. And our idea is to trust God in the midst of all the unjustness of the world. Trusting God. Believing God. Believing that He has everything under control and believing that He will right all wrongs even if it's not in this life, but in the life to come. Now, this is a hard word. This is a very hard word. I mean, what is the point of submission to government? Why is it that we're called upon to bring our obedience to the government that God has placed over us? Look at what Peter says. He says in this very provocative text that we're to Be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. This is the structure of government. And why? Why are we to do this? For the punishment of evildoers, to punish those who do evil and to the praise of those who do right. You see, the context For our submission to the government is not only the whom, that is our national or local leaders, but also the why, and the why question is answered here, the punishment of evildoers and the praising of right doers. This is the government's role. This is what they're to do. We are to allow the government to exact vengeance upon those evildoers and not to take the law into our own hands. That's very consistent with what Romans 12 says, and that is leave room for the wrath of God so that he might take vengeance upon those who are evildoers. Do you see what kind of anarchy there could be in Christianity, especially? If we were to say, well, you're not doing what God has told you to do in every place and at every point, and therefore it is incumbent upon me as one of Christ's followers to make sure you do so, so I will be a vigilante force, even if by the committee of one, so as to make you realize that I don't support what you're doing, And I'm going to do what I can to stomp out all evildoers, including yourself, if need be. You see what kind of anarchy would come? And even if Christians were to do it in mass, because if they were to do it in mass, and if they were coming against a totalitarian regime, let's say, and we were to do it because we have been so forsaken and so maligned and so hurt, that we are going to finally say the line in the sand has been drawn, enough is enough, we can't take it anymore, and we are going to stamp out all evil doing as a mass of Christian believers in a certain place or in every place. And if you do that, where is the line between doing something like that and promoting gospel peace? Where's the line? Okay, what's the message of these Christians? I mean, if if they're trying to strike back at us for our perceived evil doings, then how does that relate to the gospel itself? The gospel of peace, the gospel of good news, the gospel of love, the gospel of righteousness. 
Well, perhaps the Christians would say, well, we're dealing with you because you are inherently unrighteous. Uh, There's no righteousness seemingly in you at all as you govern us. And so therefore, we're going to take it into our hands so that you see for sure, without a moment's hesitation, that we don't appreciate what you're doing and we're representing God and we're going to stamp you out and establish a Christian moral government in your place. And how long do you think that Christian moral government will be in place? And and how long do you think that a Christian moral government run by Christians who are in and of themselves, though regenerate, sinful, and how long do you think corruption will be completely stamped out in such a government? About a minute. So, God so wisely, with His infinite mind, draws a huge line between either one or many Christians who are attempting to do what God himself can only do as the righteous one with no inherent sin whatsoever. And so what do we do in the meantime? We praise the government when they do what is right. And we wait until God avenges all the wrongs. And we do it, as we say to our children, with a happy heart. This is what we do. By the way, when we allow the government to exact vengeance upon evildoers and not take the law into our own hands, the same word for punishment here is used in Romans twelve nineteen. But there, it's used to call believers not to take vengeance upon themselves as an individual. And just a few verses later, Paul says it's the government's role to do that. And so we let God be God. We let sovereignty be sovereignty. We let God do what He's going to do to effect His will through the government. Because do we suppose that any government of the world, no matter how perceived it is for righteousness or unrighteousness' sake, that God isn't in charge every moment of the day? Do we suppose that He's wringing His hands up in the heavens, not quite knowing how to get through this particular thorny thicket of problems and issues? In fact, I would rather say I'm of the mind that He sees things fairly clearly. And He knows exactly what to do. And He knows exactly when to do it. So, the command is submit. The context is, whatever government God has sovereignly and providentially placed you under when you come into the world, and thirdly, the character of submission to the government, the character. Look at verse 15. For such, such what? Such submission. Here's the character of submission. For such, such submission is the will of God that by doing right, You may silence the ignorance of foolish men. God, through the government, punishes those who do evil and prays those who do good for this, this government that He has set in place and our submission to it. This is the will of God, that by doing good or doing right, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I mean, given the clear context of verse 12, to live this excellent Christian behavior, 
that's being watched by unbelievers around us, when you keep such behavior excellent and praiseworthy, you might very well see in the will of God by doing so that God uses you and me to be salt and light in such a government so that by his design, those within such a government will see our excellent behavior and we may even see some gospel fruit in such governmental lives. Boy, what a mission field. What a mission field. And don't miss what verse 15 says. It is the will of God. If you ever said to yourself, oh, I've got to know the will of God. What's the will of God? Well, as a famous book title says, God's will is not lost. It's found. And here's one of those passages that says explicitly, this is the will of God. So whatever the will of God is about who you're to marry or what kind of house you live in or what kind of car you're going to drive or, or anything of the sort that's not explicitly stated in the Word of God, here's one place where there is an explicit statement about the will of God, and it is this. This is the will of God, that by doing good or right, right things, good things, honorable things, righteous things, you should or may, if in fact you do them, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What does that mean? Foolish people. Well, that's not, that's not particularly a derogatory term. It's, it's something like this. That's another way of saying that foolish people are nothing other than unbelievers. We might use that as a derogatory term, fool, right? But if you were to look, for instance, at the book of Proverbs, and you see this continually in the book of Proverbs, that there is the difference, the great chasm of difference between the wise and the foolish. Well, did you realize that the wise is simply a synonym to talk about righteous people, believing people. We would say Christian people. And the foolish of the book of Proverbs and the foolish people that are listed here in verse 15 of 1 Peter 2 are are not speaking derogatorily about them as fools. You're a fool! It's simply saying you're an unbeliever. You're an unbeliever. By the way, you know one of the most famous passages in the book of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He'll make your path straight. Do you realize that that's one of the most evangelistic passages in the book of Proverbs? What? Uh, wait a minute. Are you saying that that's not just a good proverbial statement for all people? Well, think about it. If you were to quote that, and some of you might even say, that's my life verse. I I love that verse. Well, do you realize that while that is so wonderful as a verse to, in fact, quote, if you look at it in its context, trust in the Lord, Proverbs 3, 5, with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And then look at the very next verse. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You know what that means? Turn away from your evil lifestyle. Turn away from your wickedness. 
turn away from your rebellion. You know what it's saying? The wise man is a person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ with all his heart and lives, abides by biblical, spiritual principles, and a person who is wise in their own eyes is a person who is trusting in himself. He's not trusting the Lord Jesus. He's trusting in himself. He's trusting in his ability to make a way that is straight for his own evil purposes. Do you realize that Proverbs 3, 5, 6, 7, and 8 is evangelistically saying to you, like we're saying to our governmental leaders, if you see righteousness in me, if you see my submissiveness to you as a governmental leader, if you know that I'm praying for you, if you see a kind of concrete ability in my heart to follow the will of God by doing the word of God, then it's evangelistically a conviction to your soul, or so I hope and pray, that you will see what a Christian really looks like. What Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is saying, what 1 Peter 2, 15 is saying, it's exactly parallel. Live your Christian life in such a way, and here in this context, it's regarding or toward your government that you're living this Christian life, so that you have been able to show them that you are looking away from your own understanding. Turn away from your own way of trying to live life, and you are you are looking to see how God's life is ought to be lived. You, you are asking Jesus Christ to direct your paths. You are looking away from all the things that you think you ought to do in your life that allows you to be happy and allows you to be fulfilled, and you turn away from all those things so that you are looking squarely at the will of God as told to you by the Word of God so that when you look at the governments of God that He set up in the world, they'll see you as a person who is wise and righteous and holy so that their ignorance and their foolishness about who God really is, about what the cross really means, about how the Holy Spirit really impacts my living every day of my life as I submit myself to Him, they'll really see what a Christian is like. And they might very well say something like this, I have decided to follow Jesus because I saw what a Christian really is. He's looking away from his own understanding. Turn away from that. Turn away from evil and the evil life and the evil way of thinking and the evil deeds and turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith so that you would see through my life and my witness, through my life and my lips, that I want to be as submissive as I possibly can. And the only time that I cannot submit to these unjust directives of my government is if they are saying you cannot worship Jesus Christ in any way. In fact, even even in the DVD that we saw in that first hour, there are some of those believers in a very beleaguered place who are told, as the DVD shared with us, you cannot say that Jesus is the only way. You can say that Jesus is one of the ways to God, But you can't say that there is an exclusivity with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll let you alongside our pantheon of gods. And of course, we know that Hinduism has millions, hundreds of millions of deities. We'll let you have Jesus be one of them. 
but we certainly can't have you going around telling people that there is only one of them and it's him. You can't do that. And the man in the DVD, the faithful preacher, said, if I can't say Jesus is the only way to God, then I can't preach Jesus among other gods. This is the only message I have. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. Now, if the government ever told us, you cannot say that. And if you say that, we will come and we will arrest every one of you here, including the preacher who said such a thing. Well, perhaps that day may come for us. It's not here now. Praise God for that. And yet... If we follow the will of God, perhaps our salt and lightedness in the midst of a decaying culture might bring such a thing to us. But until then, we have every opportunity to be the best kinds of citizens we can possibly be. This is, this is what we ought to do. Number four, the condition of our submission to the government, the condition Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, Act as free men or live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God or slaves of God. I mean, this seems paradoxical. I know that. I mean, you're telling me you're free in Christ. Lance, you're telling me that the penalty for my sin has been borne by Christ, so I'm free of the penalty of sin. I'm free in Christ. And yet, there are some limits to my freedom. I thought if I'm, I'm free in Christ, then everything goes. Well, yes, it does, except for those things that are unlawful. I mean, when the Bible says, act as free men... That means you're free in Christ to act out everything that's lawful. It's not a, it's not a free-for-all. Now I'm free in Christ. I can do anything I want. And sometimes that message is being preached by certain preachers and by certain churches. That once you're free in Christ, there is no law in the sense that you can do whatever you want, even those things that are unlawful because you're free. In a word, that's called antinomianism. That's a big word. Namas is the word for law. Anti means no law. I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. But what does Peter say? Here's what you ought to do. You ought to be free. Yes, you are. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as a slave for God. Wait a minute. I was a slave to sin. I was liberated from the penalty of sin, therefore I'm free, but now you're telling me I'm a slave. So am I free or am I a slave? Uh, Yes. Yes. Yes, you're free. But you're not free to do any old thing you'd like. Because if you are, if that's the way you're living, if that's the way your lifestyle is portraying itself to the world then somebody in the world could rightly say something like this, you're no different than I am. So what commends Christ's cross to me by your life? What commends it? 
I mean, if you're, if you're doing all the same evil things that I'm doing, there's no commendation from this Christ and his cross. And you could even say it like this, then I suppose what you're really saying by your lifestyle is that Christ died needlessly. He died needlessly because there's no difference between the two of us. So yes, I'm free in Christ to do the things that are lawfully abiding for the glory of Christ. And the things that are, in fact, prohibited, I take my freedom in Christ and say, I have the freedom to say no to that, and therefore I will. I shall not do it because I'm a slave of Christ. This is what Peter's saying. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're free in Christ, but you're not free in Christ regarding sinful actions. You, you aren't free to use your freedom, Peter says, as a covering for evil deeds. Hey, come on into this kind of church where everything's free. You can do it all here. doesn't matter. In fact, that's what Paul was doing when he was chiding the Romans, beginning in Romans 6, when he says... Hey, look, you guys seem to be exalting your freedom in Christ to have your sin and Christ. It can't be that way. You've actually been redeemed from your sin and its penalty so that you can be free to be a slave of Christ. To be a slave of Christ, to say no to your desires so that you can say yes not to the bondage of sin, but to the freedom from it so that you might be free in Christ to say no to your sin. You say, I have no idea what you just said. Could you say that again? Probably not. But it has to do with a direct bullseye hit on somebody who says, I'm free in Christ so that I may be free not to do anything my government tells me to do. Because I'm free in Christ. And if I'm free in Christ, I'm free from the shackles of what the government mandates that I do. And if God has put the government in charge over you, and there are some things that the government is telling us to do that is right and is honorable and is best as far as the government and the society is concerned, and if I choose to say no to that, I'm actually, my friends, at cross purposes with God himself. Because he set it up this way. And if I say, I'm not shackled by that. I'm not into that. You can't make me do that. Well, God's will is that you do that for everything that he's set up that's right and honorable and best so that when you and I have the platform of doing what's right and honorable and best, we're showing ourselves not only to be good citizens, but Christ-exalting people who are submissive to the government so that we may silence the ignorance of a few foolish people, unbelievers. You know what the greatest thing is regarding our government? If you and I rubbed shoulders with them enough that some of them would come over to our side. I remember, of course, very well, and so do you, the ministry of Charles Colson, who was himself languishing in a prison asking eternal questions about the Watergate scandal and his involvement with it. And God used an evangelist who challenged him. 
and that famous story of Chuck Colson where he gets in his car after this particularly poignant time with that evangelist, Tom, and he couldn't even put the car in drive because he was so convicted and he sat there with his head on the steering wheel crying his eyes out saying, I am a wretched, miserable, poor, naked, blind sinner. And what Tom has been telling me is that I need a Savior. Now, this is one of the Watergate felons. And he lived the rest of his life to try to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ, particularly through his ministry with prison fellowship. That's just just one example. You know that right now, my friend Mark Dever is pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church on Capitol Hill and who has a number of government officials who have been won to Christ and who come to his church and he's feeding them the word of God each and every Lord's Day. This is, this is an opportunity for us to show ourselves what God is doing in the world by our excellent Christian behavior. And I, and I can't stop with this. Five and finally, the comprehensiveness of our submission to the government. Because I, I see Peter saying something like this with this comprehensive statement in verse 17. I see him saying, if there's any doubt about what I'm telling you, let me go into the widest possible latitude about this Christian excellent behavior of ours. And he says this in verse 17. Notice the comprehensiveness of it. Honor a few people when you feel like it. Honor everyone. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. What's he saying? It's as easy as this. Number one, to all people, give honor. To all people. To other Christians, love. To God himself, fear. You say, what's fear? That sounds like a a frightened sense of this foreboding God before me. No. Fear is a, a, a healthy dread of a holy God, a healthy dread of a holy God, and a healthy fear that says, I want your will to be done in my life. I fear you because you're holy, but there's this health-giving, life-giving fear that says, when I follow God, He keeps me safe. So to, to other Christians, I love. To God Himself, I fear. And to the ruling authority, I honor. That's maybe particularizing the first one, to all people, honor. And to those who are in ruling authority, honor. How comprehensive are we to be in our submission? We're to honor, respect all people in a general sense. We're to especially love, that is, with the choice of our wills to love other Christians like Galatians 6, do good to all men, but especially those who are of the household of faith. And we are to fear God with this holy reverence and this healthy dread of God Himself. And we're to honor, that is, respect even the ruling authority of our lives. Now, if somebody says, too tall an order, too tall an order. I want you to turn as we close to Titus. Titus, this is, this is a good word for which we can end this series, especially in talking about the government. We're going to talk about husbands and wives and slaves and masters, but regarding this 
governmental entity in our lives. We're, we're here to say we understand who we are and we understand who you are. And this is a perfect word, Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Paul tells Titus, remind them, that is the believers, you're their leader, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. There's that emphasis again, submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and listen to this, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That verse haunts me like the plague. I mean, I, we're supposed to live our Christian lives in such a way that both with believers and certainly with unbelievers, we're to show perfect courtesy toward all people? Why? How? What's the frame of reference? Verse 3, remember this. For we ourselves were once foolish. There it is again. For we ourselves were once unbelievers, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Guess what? Even if that's true of some, if not most, of our governmental officials, just what I read, here's what we ought to remind ourselves. I was there too. And verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There it is. I do what I do toward my government and toward all people because I remember from that which I have been delivered. And I want to see their deliverance as well. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, may, be, may this be true of our own hearts for now and for the rest of our lives so that we, knowing who we were, knowing what kind of people we were, we have been delivered. And we want to see those in our government as we submit to them come to a place where they see the truth and we are able to silence the ignorance of foolish men. May you allow us to have this kind of attitude toward all people and especially those who rule over us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.